This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. I am your charming host, Justin Kenny, and I am excited to be here with you guys. Now, if you are a first-time listener, I really appreciate you tuning in for today's episode. And if you're a repeat customer back for more, well, I'm glad you're here too. Now, today's episode is going to be a second of the series that I'm doing on kind of the grand theories of international relations. If you tuned in last week, we did an entire episode on the theory of realism. Realism is one of the biggest, probably of all time, theories of international relations. So if you haven't had a chance to go check that one out, I would recommend you do that. Today's episode will occasionally reference realism, so it may be useful to have listened to that one first. But if you'd rather listen to them in backwards order, I'm perfectly fine with that too. So the theory that we're going to be talking about today is something called liberal institutionalism. Now, liberal institutionalism, sometimes just called liberalism, sometimes just called institutionalism, has nothing really to do with what we tend to think of today in America as liberal, not in the sense of liberal versus conservative. Here, liberal is being referenced in the more classical sense of the term. Now, liberal institutionalism really kind of has its roots in the 1940s. There was a theory called idealism. This is where we started to see kind of post-World Wars, some of these big institutions start to develop. The UN being probably the biggest, but there were several economic institutions as well uh, and, and other type of regional organizations. But it really wasn't until after the Cold War that we saw re- liberal institutionalism take off. And part of this is because If you listen to the last episode, realism started to really decline at this point. During these first few years after the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union fell, we were seeing kind of a trend toward fewer and smaller wars. And so a lot of these other explanations that realism wasn't really capturing started to rise. And liberal institutionalism probably becomes the most famous of the bunch. So while it emerged kind of in the 70s, roots in the 40s, it really grew dramatically as a theory in among political scientists and policymakers after the Cold War. And they start by asking a bunch of questions. First of all, they ask, you know, why do institutions exist? If states are the only actors, if anarchy means that states are constantly in conflict and these institutions shouldn't matter, then why do they exist? They also ask questions like, how are peace and cooperation possible? We seem to see states act in cooperation with one another, and this doesn't really get explained by some of the other theories, namely realism. We also see theorists start to ask questions about relative versus absolute power. Is relative power really what's most important, or should states be concerned with absolute power, kind of at the global level of all states rising in power together? And finally, we also start to see them ask, is power really enough? Is power really what drives international society? All previous theories, realism included, pretty much focused on this idea of power, especially military power, but others, other types as well. But institutionalists start to ask these questions. Do states need to be concerned with something more than just raw power? And so out of this, you start to see several new theories form. One of liberal institutionalism's primary founders is a man by the name of Immanuel Kant. You may have heard of Kant in some of your philosophy classes in college or in other realms as well, but he becomes one of those primary drivers of liberal institutionalism because he points out 
one possible answer to how things like peace and cooperation are even possible. And he mostly points to this idea of organizations or norms and rules at the international level that he says can help facilitate cooperation between the states. Because he goes on to essentially say that peace depends on the internal character of governments, especially if they're responsive to their citizens, like a democracy would be where the government is ultimately uh, beholden to their citizens because the citizens could vote them out. This actually ends up becoming the basis for one of the major theories in all of international relations, the democratic peace theory. And then he also goes on to say that trade between states helps promote peace because it creates this mutual dependency. You get this economic interdependence. And so a lot of institutionalism theory gets based on these three ideas from Kant, that organizations, institutions, rules, and norms can help facilitate cooperation. A great example of this would be the UN that peace depends on the internal character of governments, especially if governments are more uh, responsive to their citizenry. And then third, that trade can help promote peace. Now, ultimately, the goal of liberal institutionalism is to explain how peace and cooperation are possible. They believe that the rules of international relations are evolving, unlike, say, the realist one, if you remember from last week, where they talk about that innate human nature and things are unchanging, very constant. Institutionalists believe that that's not true. And so they, this idea of power then gets kind of overridden by economic and political considerations over time. Now, a liberal institutionalists will admit that states are still self-interested. They still act rationally, but they don't believe that states are unitary or that they're the only actors. They believe they may still be the most important actors, but they don't necessarily think they're the only ones. And so they start to put into play some of these other types of organizations like the UN that they believe can help serve separate to states and help promote peace overall. Now, before I go too much further into this, let's talk about a few of the other names you should know in liberal institutionalism. As I mentioned, Immanuel Kant can probably be considered one of the founders. I would throw in there Adam Smith as well. And then some of the major thinkers in this would be guys like Joseph Nye and probably most primary, a man by the name of Robert Cohane. He's probably one of the most famous developers of liberal institutionalism that exists. A liberal institutionalist like Cohane, though, looks at the world and sees something different than their realist brethren before them. They look at the world and rather than seeing some sort of selfish, innate human nature driving things, they look for examples of peace and cooperation that have developed over time. And so they say that while states can still be self-interested and they don't take that away, they argue that that self-interest can equate to collective interest where kind of a mutual benefit across two different parties, maybe more parties, is still a form of self-interest. Not necessarily common good, like you might have heard, but just this idea that cooperating with another state, creating peace in another state, can benefit both parties and still be viewed as self-interest. But the key argument that liberal institutionalists make here is that despite the conflict that you see in the world, despite the potential for conflict, despite the driving self-interest, you do see things that can help promote peace. And they believe, primarily speaking, that this can be done through institutions, which is where you get the name institutionalism. And they basically argue that things like the UN can help both increase and aid cooperation on sort of a global level between states. They help facilitate peace in that these sort of institutions provide a platform for states or actors to come together and to forego their kind of short-term individual interest in order to further some sort of long-term well-being of the greater global community. Now, this can be done in many ways. 
Frequently, it's just argued that it's done through providing a platform for, for states to come together, increasing transparency. They believe that through that increased transparency, you are more able to trust one another. And when you're able to trust one another, you can get things done better. And they also argue that states kind of look at this long-term benefit where things like reciprocal contributions, concessions on one front can lead to concessions on another front among members, and this kind of plays a key role. Actors are then capable of looking at those long-term well-being and foregoing their, their short-term interest. And so because of this, while other theories like realism from last week look at war conflict as kind of the rational, inevitable end of every interaction, the liberal institutionalists will argue that war and violence is actually irrational because it harms that long-term interest of any sort of states that go to war. And then society in general as well. It's against societal interests. And they argue this especially because of trade. So while institutions play a major role in this, the idea of interdependence on trade helps explain a lot of their reasoning here. And the argument goes, if you're trading with another state, if you're, say, the United States and you're trading with another country, you are less likely to go to war with that country for a variety of reasons, but primarily speaking because if you do, then that ends up hurting your, your interests because you can no longer get the goods that you're trading. And if trade is mutually beneficial, then by going to war and losing trade, that is detrimental to both you, but also the country that you're opposing. And so that means that trade discourages war or encourages peace. And so liberal institutionalists are heavy on this idea of promoting trade between countries, open borders, free markets, those type of things that can help create these repeated interactions that help drive peace. And even though they will agree that there is no sort of international governing body, despite things like the UN, they understand that states still kind of give power to the UN. They don't think you necessarily need a world government to enforce some of these norms and rules because they're done through reciprocity. You know, states that defect, they argue, will ultimately suffer punishments on their own through reputation costs or losing trade down the road or simply just losing face on the kind of the world stage. And so they'll point to cases of international cooperation that they see as examples that this is taking place. Things like uh, foreign aid or running rescue missions or things like peacekeepers in the UN going in to help stop a genocide in some country. And so they think that this kind of mutual cooperation actually creates a cycle of mutual cooperation because if you defect, that then creates a cycle of mutual defection. And to a liberal institutionalist, this means that there is benefit in creating alliances. Because if you can create an alliance where you can trust the opposing member, instead of just treating them as potential rivals like had been done for so long up to this point, you can kind of jointly oppose aggression by those on the outside and discourage uh, aggression from, say, an opposing force. And this leads them into the concept of collective security as well, because collective security is this idea of a kind of a broad alliance across multiple actors that can jointly oppose that aggression. And now this does depend on a couple of things. It depends on countries keeping their alliance commitments, not free riding. And that's actually been a point of contention that some states might be free riding in the United Nations right now. But they also must agree on what constitutes aggression. And this is where the UN does seem to suffer a little bit because if the aggression is by one of those five veto players on the Security Council, they can veto the resolution, the UN becomes helpless. But an institutionalist will still point to this and say, yes, it may not be perfect. Yes, they, that these five states can kind of stall it out, but it still creates a platform. It still creates an alliance 
basis that can be trusted, and it creates a safer, more peaceful world overall. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, this theory really started or had its roots in something called idealism, which kind of jump-started after the First World War when the League of Nations was founded. But the League of Nations ultimately failed, and it had to be retried again. After World War II, you get the United Nations, and you start to see this theory develop. Beyond that, you get into the 1970s, where liberal institutionalism really emerges as its own unique theory, becomes codified, and then you see it grow after World uh, after the Cold War. Excuse me. But throughout all of these iterations of it, you still see liberalism or institutional liberalism as being very utilitarian, uh, very cost-benefit analysis, and very rationalistic. So they don't take too many strides away from the previous theories that, that preceded them. States are treated as rational actors. They believe that the international political system is anarchic, in which you know, there's no real hierarchy that can be enforced. But at the end of the day, a liberal institutionalist argues that the world is structured or ordered in a way that allows for institutions to have their own innate power outside that which, which is given to them by states. Now, they do acknowledge that states provide a lot of the power. States have to give up some level of sovereignty for these institutions to work. But at the end of the day, they think that these institutions do have some sort of power in and of themselves. Now, there's some disagreement about how much that is, but they argue that even a little bit of effectiveness is still enough. And because of this, we've seen a huge emergence of these kind of post-World War II institutions. I've already mentioned the UN, but you also have things like the World Bank, NATO, that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, the General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs, which existed for a little while, that was called GATT, and many others. And these kind of institutions are the founding of what you would consider today's liberal world order, according to institutionalists. And going back to Kant for a minute, who I, I should have mentioned this earlier, Kant wrote his ideas in an essay called Perpetual Peace back in the late 1700s. But he basically says that countries can use these institutions and they can bind themselves to these institutions in a way that allows them to overcome that innate attraction to power and competition and conflict. Because by forming like-minded groups, especially, he argues, in sort of a democratic sense, you can create a system where there is some sort of sustained cooperation long-term. And so Kant's roadmap is what's frequently used today. At the time, it's not codified in any sense like we see it today, but it does get repackaged in many forms down the road. You see uh, Woodrow Wilson, U.S. president, uh, during or sh shortly after the First World War, where he puts his 14-point plan. He's the one who spearheaded the idea of the League of Nations. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, act on the four freedoms that he claimed that should spread democracy and peace throughout the world. And this has led into one of the probably most influential theories of all time in political science, especially at the policymaking level, something called the democratic peace theory. Now, you'll notice that up to this point, liberal institutionalism is a much more optimistic theory than realism from last week. It really puts this idea that there is hope for peace long term. And democratic peace theory kind of lays out the groundwork for how we can go about that. Democratic peace theory, though, is quite controversial in many areas because there's a lot of questions about whether or not it it's really has any truth to it. But essentially, the argument here goes back to this question that people started to notice that democracies tend not to fight other democracies. And proponents of this theory will claim that there are few, if any, cases of true war between democratic countries. 
And so this has actually led to a very influential policy. You see this across the board from Bill Clinton to George Bush and this idea of spreading democracy. An idea that's really seen across all parties, Republican and Democrat, here in the United States. And this theory really is a contrast to what a lot of previous theories about war and conflict were that were designed to explain war, because its entire purpose here is to explain peace. It's a theory of peace. It outlines the motives that, that dissuade states from engaging in war with other states. Previously, I mentioned Immanuel Kant. He is not the only one from this time period who had some ideas on this. There were plenty of other 18th century Enlightenment thinkers who had this idea that democracies might be more peaceful. And they based their ideas on a lot of the, the principles that we tend to think of today of free markets, open values, democratic institutions, free elections, voting, those type of things. Because there's a couple arguments that get that come out of this, but essentially when the ruler of a country or the leader of a country is accountable to the people, a democratic peace theorist will say that they are more likely than to play it safe and not go to war. A representative government means the citizens become partially responsible for decisions that are made. And the argument is that the general public tends not to like war. And further, democratic institutions because they tend to act slower, because power is fragmented across multiple levels, you don't have just a single individual or a small group making the decision to go to war. Democracies then have more constraints on the use of force. Further, we have democratic institutions, as I mentioned earlier, that kind of increase transparency, they increase accountability, they put two states in a room together, or two leaders in a room together, that's supposed to help increase transparency. It makes bargaining easier, it makes your threats more credible because countries can really see if you mean business on that threat. Uh, you're also less likely, or less able, I should say, to back down because you're held accountable by the people. If you don't follow through on your threats, it could result theoretically in you being removed from power. So there's an incentive for leaders to follow through on threats. And then you also have this idea, as I mentioned before, about free markets, that it's economic development that's spurring this. And you have this kind of spinoff theory called the capitalist peace theory that says free market economies see less war. And the free market is obviously a kind of a democratic institution. And so you have these kind of similar interests, similar ideologies, open markets, more interactions between countries that they will argue make you less likely to engage in or to, to have ill will towards other states, but then also less likely to engage in war and turn conflict that you may have into something more violent. But as I mentioned, this is kind of a controversial idea because there's a lot of cases that seem to disprove this. Uh, first and foremost, the most war-prone country in the world is the United States, which is at its core a democracy. And there have been a lot of other militarized disputes between democracies that kind of fall short of war, usually over colonies, you know, by Britain, France, some other countries. There are a lot of militarized conflict. They just never quite rose to the level of war. And so there's some questions to whether or not that, what that means, really. Further, there's been some notice that democracies aren't really any less war-prone overall. So these institutions don't make them more peaceful inherently. They just tend to fight non-democracies. And so there's some questions about, about whether it's just competing ideologies at war here, and you are less likely to fight somebody who agrees with you on things. We also have this kind of argument that democracies have not been around for that long. In the history of the world, the sample size of democracies is fairly small. I mean, really in the modern form of what democracy means, we've only really had it around for about 150 to 200 years. 
and really up until the late 1800s, there has only been about 10 to 12 democracies total in the world, most of which were not very near to each other. So that limited opportunity for conflict. And so there's some real questions as to whether or not the evidence showing lack of war between democracies is actually due to democratic institutions, or if it's really just a small sample size, and if they're around for much longer, you will see war. But I think probably the most common critique of democratic peace theory is simply that it's hard to define democracy. And this seems like kind of a silly point, but think really think about what does it mean to have a democracy? And you'll come up with things like, you know, it's a political system where candidates compete for office. You need some sort of elections that are fair, also frequent. And then you also have this idea that you need to have a population that can actually vote. And so there's some questions as to what it means to be a democracy. Where on that spectrum do you draw the line? For example, was the United States a democracy before women could vote? Because if only half the country could vote, uh, actually less than that too, if, if you count that it was only white male landowners for a while, there's some real question as to you know what portion of the population needs to be able to vote for it to be considered democracy. Even today, where it's much more open, we already have some limitations. Obviously, there's an age limitation. You have to be 18. We uh, don't allow felons to vote. And so there's already some limitations on it. And so there's a question as to how much of the population needs to be able to vote for it to be considered democracy. You also have countries that fit into like uh, the c category of Russia or North Korea that do have elections. They are frequent elections but they're usually considered to not be fair. There's no real contestation. Uh, participation may be limited or uh, the numbers may be made up. And then you also have this question about these other liberties, where do they factor in? Civil and political rights, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. These type of questions, you know, are you really a democracy if you have frequent fair elections, but you don't have freedom of religion or you don't have freedom of the press? or your government runs your press. And there's also a handful of cases where a country seemed to be a democracy. And I'm going to use the example of pre-World Wars Germany. Now, Hitler actually initially rose to power under democratic institutions. He was elected. But by the time the World Wars came around, he had really taken a much more authoritarian control of government. So does that count as a democracy? How do we define frequent elections? How frequent is frequent enough? How do we define fair elections? These are, are very big challenges, and the strength of the entire theory really depends pretty heavily on how we define democracy. And there's actually been a, a challenge to this theory, and democratic peace theorists have tried to respond by changing the definition a little bit, that maybe it needs to be mature democracies, you know, democracies that have been around long enough to really establish these institutions. But this actually raises some questions as to how we define mature because transitioning democracies, countries that are becoming a, dem a democracy, actually see more war. Further, it also depends on how you define war. As I mentioned, there were a lot of militarized disputes between democracies, especially back in the colony days. And these disputes were violent at times, but they never really spilled over into what might be considered a war. Or I shouldn't say never, they rarely spilled over. And so there are some cases that are very challenging to this theory. Now, I do want to mention there is one probable exception to this theory that even democratic peace theorists will sometimes acknowledge, and that's the Cargill War of 1999. Now, if you're not familiar with that, I don't blame you. It's not one that got a lot of press, but it was essentially a war between India and Pakistan over the Kashmir region. Both had democratically elected governments. Actually, interestingly, both of them also had nuclear weapons at the time, making it the only war between two states that had nuclear weapons. But there's a question here about 
whether or not this this war really should count because India and Pakistan have been fighting for decades. And so there's some thought that this war was really just a, an escalation of previous conflict prior to their democratic institutions being established. But it is still a war that took place after democratically elected governments. And ultimately, this theory has been very hotly debated. And it's a really important one to think about because it's been used, especially here in the United States, as justification to spread democracy around the world. If we truly believe that democracy equates to peace or increases the chance of peace in the world, then there is incentive to spread that democracy. And this argument has been used by multiple presidents, both Democrats and Republicans. As I mentioned, they were both big under Clinton and Bush, but even Obama carried out this theory as well. And so this becomes justification to go into other countries and try to encourage or enforce democratic ideals and democratic institutions. Others, on the other hand, will say that this theory only really seems true because we kind of have to skew definitions to make examples fit the theory. But at the end of the day, this is a theory that has a lot of influence in the world, and it spawns out of a lot of these liberal institutionalist ideas. So if you're someone who believes in so-called the Kantian triangle, or you'll hear it called the triangle of peace, the Kantian peace, this idea of democracy, economic interdependence, and international organizations, those three principles, if you believe that those three things can help promote peace, then there is incentive and there is a desire to push them to promote peace on the world. And so this is a theory that really does have a lot of real world implications that need to be considered because it's one of those few political science theories that's really jumped that leap across the chasm into policymaking. Frequently there's this big criticism that political scientists and policymakers see a gap between them. But this is one of those few cases where we really do see political science and policymaking connect in a real-world, influential manner. And as I've mentioned a couple times now, this is one of those theories, too, that is really nonpartisan. You know, Bill Clinton during the 90s featured many appeals to this argument, but it's also been used into the George Bush administration. We used force to topple Saddam Hussein's dictatorship, believing that if we could instill a democracy, that would increase the probability of peace throughout that region in the Middle East. And so this theory, more than most in political science, has an impact that can actually be observed in the world. But before we go ahead and close out the episode, let's take a minute and jump back to liberal institutionalism specifically. Uh, well, democratic peace is a, is a theory that kind of spawned out of institutionalism. It is not institutionalism in and of itself. So let's just take a minute and jump back to the theory that's on tap today. Because I want to kind of close things out with a critique of liberal institutionalism. If you remember from last episode, I finished realism by critiquing it. I think it's just as important that we critique liberal institutionalism. Is one of the main critiques that you see here is that institutions are really run by states. A realist will argue that states just use these organizations as pawns. States give them power and they can take away that power. And so they don't really have any power in and of themselves like you um, might see on a liberal institutionalist perspective. Institutionalist argues that these states or these institutions, sorry, have power in and of themselves to promote and co uh, cooperation and peace. But if these organizations are just pawns and the, the powerful states are simply using them in another arena to play out their grand power politics, this again makes states the only actors. It takes away that institutionalist idea of peace. And it really means that at the end of the day, these organizations are simply being used to pursue the self-interest of individual states and not any sort of collective absolute interest. But with that final critique for you to think about, 
I'm going to go ahead and close out the episode. Now, if you have listened to both realism and liberal institutionalism and you think neither one of those really fits, you're in great company. There are not many true 100% realists anymore. There's not many true 100% institutionalists. You often see this on the spectrum. Uh, and so you'll see people who say, I believe in liberal institutionalism or I lean towards institutionalism, but acknowledge some of the problems with the theory as a whole. Further, there's actually a couple other theories, and I think I'll probably do a third part to this series where I touch on some of the smaller ones. There's something called social constructivism. Uh, there's something called the English school. And there's a handful of other small theories as well that have kind of cropped up to help explain some of these holes that they see in the, in the bigger theories. So if you've listened to both of these episodes and you still have some problems with the theories, you don't really think either one of them is a great explanation for how the world is ordered, don't feel like you're an outsider. There's a lot of people in that same boat. But with that, I think we've come to the end of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find me on Twitter at JustinR underscore Kenny. Please follow me there, and I'm happy to continue the conversation. You can also find me on Facebook at J. Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under. You can find my first book, Precipice. It's on Amazon. I also have a second book that should be coming out sometime this fall, so keep an ear out for that. And if you're interested in really supporting me, supporting this podcast, or advertising on the podcast, any of those sorts of things, you can find my Patreon account. Or you can just contact me and I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. I really appreciate it. Also, tell your friends. That's a huge, huge thing of support that you can do for me. Get people to subscribe. Hit that subscribe button yourself. Because I really appreciate all of my listeners. It's because of you guys that I'm able to do this. So I, I appreciate all that. So until next time, this is Nutshell Politics. I'm your host, Justin Kinney. And I'm out in three, two, one. 